Thanks for joining us today at City Life. We believe today's message will empower you and point you towards Jesus. But remember that church is so much more than a message you listen to. It's a living, breathing community that we invite you to be a part of. We hope to see you on a Sunday morning at City Life, in person or online. Relationship viruses and the prescription that protects. Immunity. We all could use a little more immunity, despite what the, the common buzz or arguments around immunity in this season. We all need a little bit more in our relationships, don't we? We need to be able to, especially right now, it has been the most challenging relational season I think I have ever known in my life. That, and I'm sure you feel it too, that, that there's strain, there's tension, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm talking about today the antidote for the living the dream virus. And uh, I'm, uh, let's just jump in. The American dream. I know we're not Americans, but you know what it's called. It's called it's, we don't call it the Canadian dream because we're humble people and we don't, we don't name stuff after ourselves. So it's called the American dream. And, uh, it's, and summed up, the American dream is this, get more, have more, do more. It's get more, have more, do more. That is the, whatever you want, you should be free to pursue liberty, life, happiness, and apple pie. That's just what you should be, that's what you're entitled to. That's your right. And uh, while there are some distinct differences between us and America, uh, and, and culturally speaking, we still, have, as a Western society, we have all bought into this thinking. We have, this is, when, you, when you're scrolling through ads or you're, you're opening up a magazine, if you still use paper, that's the dream that's being sold to you. That's the, that's the vision that is being presented to you. It's the vision of more, do what you want, be free. That's the we live in a consumer-driven society where the, the, the pursuit of happiness and personal freedom is, is viewed as the path to personal fulfillment. If you can pursue these things, you will be happier. If you get these things, you will become happier. And, and it's whether we, whether we consciously admit it or not, there's the, it, it's so ingrained in us, there's a part of us that can't escape it. There's a part of us, because we all know, kind of intellectually, we know those things won't make us happy. We know that I can buy a new outfit, but that outfit will not make me a happier person. I know that next month I'll want a different outfit. I already know that. I can buy a new pair of shoes, and I know next month I'll want another pair of shoes. Well, maybe not next month, but the new Metcons were getting released, and you know... You're just going to be that much better of an athlete if you just have those styling shoes on your feet as you climb the rope, which you're not allowed to do right now. We will not talk about that today. What's funny, though, is it's not funny. What's sad is statistically speaking, Western society is getting sadder and sadder. The mental health issues were becoming, it's becoming glaringly obvious there's a problem. With, not just with people, because people, we don't change. 
We just respond to the environments that we're placed in and to the philosophies that we subscribe to. But people have been the same for thousands of years. We re it's what we immerse ourselves in that has changed. And so mental health issues, we hear about it all the time. The use of antidepressants, 400% uh, increase in the last 20 years. It's actually to the place now where the, they can... They, can, they know how many people are on antidepressants by the level of antidepressants in the sewage. So they, they, the St. Lawrence River, they, they actually, they're worried about the, the life, the marine life in the river because of the, the exceedingly high and rising levels of antidepressants in the water. We have to address this. It's not just saying antidepressants are bad. You know, if antidepressants help you get over a hurdle in your life, that, that, that can be a good thing. The question I would ask is why are we needing it as a culture in increasing measure year after year, decade after decade? What is happening in us that is causing us to need more of this rather than get away from this? This is an interesting thing I read yesterday. White, middle-aged North American uh, white middle-aged North American men are three times as likely as any other race or ethnic group on the planet to be on antidepressants. And that's kind of the demographic that epitomizes the American dream, isn't it? Like that is, the, that's what, maybe our dream isn't that great of a dream. Maybe it's more of a nightmare. And so, is the pursuit of happiness, is the, 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 pers the pursuit of happiness and personal freedom really the thing that will lead us to greatness? We have to stop and ask the question, what are we missing? What are we missing? And more importantly, what's the solution? We, we are seeking a great life, but what does Jesus actually have to say about what a great life is? What does Jesus have to teach about what greatness really is? And I, the, we're in the season of Lent, which is, you know, the, in the traditional church calendar, this is a season to reflect on the life and teaching of Jesus. This is a, this is a season where we reflect as we approach the Easter Sunday. It's a season where we, we reflect on some of the key moments in the life of Jesus that we can learn from. And so I want us to jump in right into the, uh, the disciples have gathered for Passover. They have just eaten, uh, they've just eaten a meal together, which history will now call the Last Supper. It's the last time they eat together. And I want to give you a bit of a background into what's happening in, in their minds. In, in the Jewish culture, this is a time of great, um, great distress for the Jews. It's, uh, the, the Jewish people are oppressed. They're eagerly awaiting the arrival of a Messiah. And now... In looking back, we view a Messiah now as, you know, the Savior. Jesus died on a cross, born in a manger, and, and you know, walked on water. That's, that's how we, but that's not how they viewed a Messiah. They viewed a Messiah as a political leader who would come in and overthrow the oppression of the Roman Empire and lead Israel back to, back to freedom. They, the, the, 
they had a political party in Israel. They were, they were called the Zealots. And they were actually, a, they, were, they were somewhat of a terrorist organization that was dedicated to seeing a political Messiah put into place to make Israel great again. It's a little dig there, you notice that. But that's exactly what they were looking for. They weren't, they weren't looking for forgiveness of sins. They were looking to conquer their enemies. And most of the disciples, or most biblical, biblical scholars agree that the disciples and those that followed Jesus were anticipating that Jesus would become this political tour de force that would make Israel great. That they would be able to chase their own great Mediterranean dream. And so we hear, we hear we have the disciples, they've just finished this, me, this meal, Jesus has just passed the, body, or his, or the, the bread and the wine, and he, he said, this is my body and this is my blood, which is going to be given for you, which is, you know, for the forgiveness of sins. They're still not getting it. They're still not getting it. And so here we go. We're going into the last recorded teachings of Jesus to his disciples on earth before his death. Quite possibly... You know, when you're, when you're teaching, the last thing you, that you're going to have an opportunity to teach those around you, you're going to teach what is important. You're going to remind people of this, this you need to remember this because this is important. So what do you say on the eve of your execution? What do you tell people the night before you die? What... What are the disciples discussing the night before Jesus dies? What deep, thought-provoking, theologically profound discussions around the table as the disciples are eating together and laughing and sharing? Deep, thought-provoking questions, rich with spiritual insight. We jump in Luke chapter 22. This is, we're just going to jump right in. The disciples bickered over which one of them would be considered the greatest in the kingdom. <laughs> oh, deep theological questions that get addressed. The disciples bickered. Oh, that just describes Facebook right now. <laughs> the disciples, Jesus stopped the disciples from bickering. Jesus interrupted their argument. I love this. The kings and men of authority in this world rule oppressively over their subjects, claiming that they do it for the good of the people. They are obsessed. Man, like politics never changes, does it? <laughs> politics never changes, claiming they do it for the good of the people. They are obsessed with how others see them. Jesus could have wrote this yesterday. But this is not your calling. You will lead by a different model. The greatest one among you is to live as one called to serve others without honor. The greatest honor and authority is reserved for the one who has a servant heart. Who is, who's greater right here as we eat this meal? Those of us that sit at the table or those who serve us? 
Doesn't everyone normally assume that those who are served are greater than those who serve? But consider my role among you. I have been with you as a servant. What do we find the disciples talking about? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And, and you know, this is legitimate because... They, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is coming. I, and they're thinking, you know, we're in with him. We're going to become his right-hand men. We're going to become the generals. We're going to become the, 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 the leaders and the, and the top guys in this new kingdom. And Jesus is saying, you don't get it. You don't even under, you're, you're, you're missing the whole, the whole point of what this kingdom is. The greatest one among you will live as one called to serve others without honor. Without honor means no title, no recognition, no corner office with a view, no company truck, without honor. The greatest will be the servant who doesn't need all of this to serve. And then he goes on to say, who's greater right here as we eat this meal? Those of us who sit at the table or those who serve us? What a great question. And what is he saying? He's saying those who serve make everything else possible. Without those serving the meal, there's no meal. What happens at the meal can't happen if the people who are serving don't show up and serve. I love this. John, John Ortberg says this. He says, when Jesus came in the form of a servant, he was not disguised. He was not disguising who God is. He was revealing who God is. Jesus did not come as a servant in spite of the fact he's God. He came precisely because of the fact that he's God. There's another way to help people out that instead of trying to be the super people that we aren't. The primary reason Jesus calls us to servanthood is not just because, of, because other people need our service. It's because of what happens to us when we serve. See, I don't think Jesus was saying, this is the sneaky way to become great. I think he was saying, when you serve, that's when I can do the greatest things through you and in you. And then... To reinforce the point, you have to jump to over to the Gospel of John to get this because, because the, it, doesn't, it doesn't say it in Luke, but it's the same meal. And then you find this, John chapter 13, it says, Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer robe, and he took a towel and wrapped it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' dirty feet and dry them with his towel. This would, this would be an awkward moment just in case you're, you're wondering. This would be an awkward moment. And when Jesus got to Simon Peter, Peter objected. And he said, I can't let you wash my dirty feet. You're my Lord. And Jesus replied, you don't understand yet the meaning of what I'm doing, but soon it will become clear to you. Peter looked at Jesus and said, you will never wash my feet, never. But Peter, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, then you will never be able to share life with me. So Peter said, Lord, in that case, just wash my feet and my hands and my head too. <laughs> and Jesus said to him, you're already clean. 
You've been washed completely, but you just need your feet to be clean. But that can't be said of all of you, for Jesus knew which one of them was about to betray him. So after washing their feet, he put on his robe and returned to his place at the table. Do you understand what I just did, Jesus said? You've called me your teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that's who I am. So if I'm your teacher and Lord and have just washed your dirty feet, then you should follow the example that I've set for you and wash one another's dirty feet. There's a lot of dirty feet. You know, speaking of what's going on in our world today, there's a lot of dirty feet. Now do for each other what I've just done for you. I speak to you timeless truth. A servant is not superior to his master. And an an apostle is never greater than the one who sent him. So now put into practice what I have done for you, and you will experience a life of happiness enriched with untold blessings. What is Jesus saying the great life is? He's saying the great life is one where we don't need recognition, the one where we wash each other's feet, where we serve, where we follow his example, we serve. See, what we define great and what God defines great are very seldom the same things. And by washing the disciples' feet, Jesus was saying, my kingdom is different, and in my kingdom, things will be done different. This is it. This is the lesson that Jesus thought was the most important thing to say the day before he's to be crucified. The night he's going to be arrested. This is the last interaction he has with the disciples. And what does he tell them to do? Serve one another with humility. Serve with humility. Become a servant. And he didn't didn't just become any servant. He became the foot washer. He took on... I, I can only imagine... What was on Jewish feet at this time in history? You know, you you walked around with open sandals. You walked around on dirt roads that had mules and donkeys and horses doing their business on the road. Feet would stink. You would be dealing with stinky feet in a way we just would not understand today. But why, why would he say that? Well, there's, there's things that serving does that nothing else can do. Serving connects us to one another. Serving helps us redirect our focus from ourselves to those around us. It helps us get our, it helps us get our attention off of what, what we want. And it, it actually helps. It's, when we serve, we actually become community-focused. You know, there's, uh, there's three pillars of healthy society, personal freedom, healthy community, and a sense of purpose. These are the three things that when these, it's like when these three things are in balance, society is healthy. Per, people are healthy. 
We've, we've done really good on the personal freedom aspect in Western culture. I mean, we, we defend that to the death. But we're really missing, you know, the, the sense of purpose. Purpose has been reduced to accumulation. And community has been reduced to convenient, like-minded associations. Community is, is, is vital for a better future. And even, even before the pandemic hit, communi- like, I think we were all aware community is, like, we have, to, we have to fix this. We have to fix the way we relate to each other. We have to fix the way we talk. We have, to, the, we have to fix our conversations. We have to fix the dysfunction. Oh, my gosh. But, you know, 2020 just made it all that much more obvious that there's stuff needs to get fixed. Well, serving is a way to help fix community. Serving, when we serve one another, we, we, be, we, we get less focused just on what's in our lives, and we start, uh, we start focusing on our lives together. Serving gives us a healthy perspective, and it opens the door to God's Spirit. John chapter 12, Jesus said, The person who loves his life and pampers himself will miss true life, but the one who detaches his life from this world and abandons himself to me will find true life and enjoy it forever. And, you know, our language has one word for that word life, but in the Greek, there was actually two different words used there. That first one, the person who loves his life, that word is suki, and it's, that, that life specifically means the self-life and motivation apart from God. The self, it, it originates, in, it's, it's basically our own desires and wants, what we want, that life. He says, the person who loves his own life and pampers himself will miss true life. But if you abandon that suki or that, that selfish life, I will give you Zoe life, which is eternal life. The absolute fullness of life from God. Serving is a way of you know, serving is a way of killing self-life. Serving's a way that, I'll tell you, it's a, it's a great yup from Chandler in the back. Because Chandler is here at 7 a.m. or 6.30 a.m. on Sunday to get things read. I can tell you, as a person who enjoys my bed, I would rather be in my bed at 6.30 a.m. than here turning on lights and getting, getting stuff ready. It kills a part of you when you serve, but it's a part of you that's better off dead. It kills a part of you when you serve, but it's a part of you you don't want alive. When we lay down our self-life, we receive God's eternal life. And Jesus was the model for laying down self-life. And in that John, uh, or sorry, Luke 22, it says, so now, verse 17, he says, now put into practice what I have done for you and you will experience a life of happiness enriched with untold blessings. The third thing is serving does is serving is the antidote, antidote to the living the dream virus. Serving helps, helps us fight the pull of making ourselves the center of our universe. And when, you, when we're tempted to want recognition, when we're tempted to want uh, your, your rewards or accolades or, or praise, 
Serving just helps keep us in perspective. And when we are, you know, when, when we're finding ourselves feeling a lack of appreciation or a lack of gratitude, that's when it's most important we're serving. That's when it's most important that we're, we're taking that role of the servant. Where we, we're, we're actively blocking that selfish side of our nature from hijacking the best parts of our lives. So it starts with our heart. It starts with our heart. Jesus said the greatest honor and authority is reserved for the one who has a servant heart. Not just those who do the actions of a servant, but he actually said those who have the heart of a servant. My wife said years ago, the best test to know if you have a servant's heart is how you act when you're treated like one. That's pretty profound, honey. Are you surprised I wrote that down? <laughs> she probably doesn't even remember saying it, but I remembered it. A true servant heart isn't actually something we can make ourselves. It's actually a work of the Holy Spirit. It's something that we have to open our lives to God to say, I am willing to become that servant. One of the ways that we can do that, uh, I always like to give a, a spiritual practice or some kind, of, some kind of thing that we can carry out in the week that allows us to do that. There's, there's a spiritual practice. We haven't talked about it much at church, but it's a spiritual practice called contemplative prayer. And it's a, it's a practice of, instead of, you know, many of you read your, you do your devotions, you do your, you know, you read your Bible, you, you kind of, you read it, okay, that's great, you move along. Well, contemplative prayer is basically this. It's where instead of just trying to read the Bible for volume, it's like you stop and you take that story of Jesus uh, washing the, the feet of the disciples, and you stop and you, it's like you put yourself in there. And you think, okay, what would this look like? Like, what did, how did this play out? That as we are sitting around the table arguing about who's going to get the most recognition, and let's face it, that's in all of us. You know, the, the, the dream of greatness is alive and well in all of us. And it doesn't take much to spark it back to life. And, and so... You know, you can close your eyes, even if you're watching online or you're in this room. You just close your eyes for a moment. Picture you're sitting around the table with your, with your friends. And life is exciting. Your, your master has been doing your signs and wonders. People have been getting healed. There's thousands of people following you guys from city to city and town to town and screaming your praises. You just came into Jerusalem and they started singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as we're sitting, enjoying this, this, the revelry of the day, enjoying a wonderful meal together, and we are anticipating that we are going to be leaders in this new kingdom as this, as this Messiah takes his rightful place in society and the wrongs of, of society are going to be restored. And we're sitting there eating this meal together and Someone says, well, I'm going to be the prime minister. And another one says, I'm going to be the finance minister. And we start talking about what positions we're going to have in this new kingdom. And our leader, he gets up from the table. 
and he takes his robe off. He's standing there in his underwear at the door. And then he takes the, the towel that's used for cleaning feet, and he wraps it around his waist, and he fills up the basin with water. And then he comes over to our, and he starts washing our feet at the table. It's like, this is so inappropriate. This is my leader. This is who I pledged my fealty to. What is he doing washing my feet? And finally, he comes to Peter, and Peter, he just can't take it. He just says, no, you can't do this. This is disgraceful. But then Jesus says, I have to do this. Contemplate a prayer. Make it the story alive. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying there's nothing greater than a servant. Another way we can be a servant is have a heart to build community. Jesus did not run from the messes of people. He ran right to them. And when people are messy, it's so easy to judge. But Jesus said, instead of judging, serve. Ephesians 4, it says, With tender humility and quiet patience, always demonstrate gentleness and generous love towards one another, especially to those who may try your patience. Be faithful to guard the sweet harmony of the Holy Spirit among you in the bonds of peace. You know one thing about servants? Servants clean up the mess. When there's a mess, it's the servants who pull out the cleaning supplies. People are messy. And have a heart to build relationships. Have a heart to build a relationship. You know, in this season, give people extra credit. It's so easy to read into what people are saying, or, or worse yet, it's to read into what they're writing because we're not seeing people face to face anymore. And so we can, there's so many times we can write something, but it doesn't express our heart. And when we see people face to face, we see their heart. So we're missing, we're missing the heart of our conversations. So when you're, we're tempted to react, just give grace. Give people extra big accounts right now. And when somebody writes something and, and you think, man, that's provocative or man, that's instigating, you know what? Just give them grace. Maybe they didn't mean that. Maybe that's just how they meant it at that moment when they, after they just clicked on that article that was specifically designed to create an emotional reaction in them. We need extra grace in this time. Start with your family. Start with your friends. Ephesians 4 again. This is a great, you want to read a great chapter in the Bible. Just go to Ephesians 4 this week and read this. It says, Ephesians 4, the Holy Spirit of God has sealed you in Jesus Christ until you experience full salvation. So never grieve the Spirit of God or take for granted his holy influence in your life. Lay aside bitter words, 
temper tantrums, revenge, profanity, and insults, and instead be kind and affectionate towards one another. Has God graciously forgiven you? Then graciously forgive one another in the depths of Christ's love. It's okay to let others have some slack. That doesn't mean you need to tolerate abuse. You still need to be wise. But instead of correcting, try encouraging. And I said it a a few months ago, when it comes to online interactions, ignore the temper tantrums. Great scripture, it says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. So it doesn't always depend on you, but as far as it does, live at peace with everyone. And then the last thing, how do you get a, how do you get a heart to serve? Well, one of it's just start serving. One of it is just, you know, get, get involved. And, and this, you know, there's always opportunities in the house, but you know, some of the greatest acts of service won't take place inside the walls of the church. They actually take place out in the community. There's, the, there's, there's organizations in our community that need servants. He said, well, how, how should I know what I should get involved with? Well, wherever you find yourself making this statement, the church should be doing fill in the blank. That's, that's how you know where you're probably called to serve because you're the church. So you're preaching to yourself. Let's stand up. You know, the call to follow Jesus and the call to serve are actually one and the same. Because you won't be able to follow without serving. And, you know, the, the first invitation that Jesus ever gave us was an invitation to follow him. But there's so much more that comes with that. And, you know, but that is the starting place. And I want to just, I want to lead us in a prayer. Just, it's a prayer saying yes to following him. And if you're here today and you're, you're saying, you know what, I want to be included in that prayer. Maybe you're watching right now online and as you're sitting there, you're thinking, you know what, I want to pray that prayer. I want to, I want to say yes to following Jesus. Well, you can join us together, whether you're in the room or you're watching online, you can join us. Let's pray together. Jesus, I say yes to you. I want to follow you. I want to follow in your footsteps the footsteps of a servant. I want to learn what it means to serve like you served and to love like you loved and to give grace and forgiveness like you gave grace and forgiveness. I receive that grace now in my life. Would you help me to pass that on to those around me? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome, you guys. We hope today's message encouraged you. If you want to take your next step in saying yes to Jesus, you can always contact us at cty.lc slash next step or fill out the next step section on the City Life app. It's an honor to play a small part in what God is doing in your life. We look forward to connecting with you soon.